Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Wednesday night, 730. It's time for Bible study. I am going to start the 30-second countdown. The reason why I do this is so that you can log in. Let me know where you're watching from. Say hi in the chat. Love to hear from you. Let's get the countdown started. Be right back. Welcome in. Hey, everybody. Wednesday night Bible study. Is there anything we, we could do that's better than exploring God's word and finding out about how he wants to relate to us and how we should relate to him on Wednesday night? I can't think of anything better. I'm glad that you're here. Make sure that you're hitting the like, the, bu the like button, the subscribe button, the notification bell. Get notified every time we go live with new content. Wednesday night, 7.30, deep dive Bible study. What are we talking about this season? Season seven, we are talking about the Torah, and it is part 15 of this deep dive Bible study series. But today, I am very excited to introduce to you um, a mini-series. This is what we call a series within the series. And the series that we're going to do, let me just adjust my, my monitor here. The series that we're going to do, mini-series within the series, is the Tabernacle of Israel. This is part one. And I would like to call this mini-series, The Tabernacle of Israel, A Picture of Christ. And again, part one, because we're going to do several episodes on this. As we go through Torah, we find out that there is so many different sections. You know, we, we have a mini-series going on that's going to happen sporadically called The Weird Statements or The Troubling Laws. And we did one on uh, slavery, a series on slavery, a couple of episodes back. And, and today we start another one. So this one is about the tabernacle. Why a whole series on it? Because because of this important fact. Uh, the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt among his people, Israel, in the Old Covenant. It's where he dwelt among them when they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, when he, uh, when, when the judges ruled, and then even beyond the judges into the reigns of Saul, and then David, and then of course Solomon comes and he, he replaces the tent structure with a glorious uh, ornate, temple, permanent temple. But when it comes to the tabernacle, very important fact, the vast majority of the book of Exodus, I got my Bible right here, is dedicated to the tabernacle of Israel, the wilderness tabernacle, the tent where God would dwell. Think about that. The vast majority of the second book of the Bible, which you, we even call Exodus, is actually not really about Exodus. As much as, it is, as much as it is about God with us. That's really what, what Exodus is dealing with. Yes, he calls them out of Egypt with 12, 10 mighty plagues. Yes, he raises up Moses in spite of all his insecurities and failures. And, and yes, God d displays his power. But did you know how important it is for us to understand that what God ultimately wants is to dwell with his people? That's what tonight's episode begins to explore. We have several passages dedicated to the design specifications. We have several passages dedicated to the implementation of those design specifications. And so we begin this new mini-series with that in mind. Let's go. The Deep Dive, Season 7 presents Torah, the Law of Life. 
All right, we're going to look at this in three sections when it comes to the book of Exodus. Uh, number one section that we're looking at now is chapters 25 through 30. Give us the detailed instructions that God would give to Moses. Then the second section is the Exodus chapters 31 section, which is Bezalel, Bezalel and Oholiab. They are appointed to lead the building project. Then there's a break for three chapters, Exodus 32, 33, 34, where we have the golden calf incident. We have Moses' intercession. We have the covenant renewed. And then the third section with uh, regard to the tabernacle was Exodus 35 to 40, where we talk and see about the contributions and the construction of the tabernacle. Now, this section of the Bible is where you stop reading. I know you because you're like me. And every time I try to read through the Bible, this is where I get bogged down. Uh, it's really exciting. The stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's really exciting. The story of, you know, even before that, Noah's flood or God's flood and Noah's ark. And, and uh, before that, the tower, the tower of Babel or after that, the tower of Babel. All, all those things are exciting. And then you get into Exodus and it's even more exciting. Moses is called. Moses delivers the people of Israel. God empowers Moses. Ten mighty plagues. Pharaoh's army drowns in the sea. What a beautiful story. Amazing, amazing drama. But then you really just step into the mud, don't you? You step into like three feet of mud and you're slogging through these chapters on these details about this tent structure that Israel is supposed to worship God in. And it's like, what am I doing? And that's usually where our New Year's resolution to read through the Bible ends. Raise your hand if you agree in the comments, okay? Because this is a tough section, but we're going to look at it because it reveals to us the heart of God. Now, I do have a picture here for you on the screen. This is from my Logos Bible software. This is the tabernacle structure as they suppose it to be based on the descriptions of Exodus, uh, the Exodus passages that we're looking at. And you see there is an inner tabernacle. We call that the actual, um, the holy place. And then inside the holy place is the holy of holies, this kind of cubicle structure right there where you see the numbers one, two, and three. Uh, there's a veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. There's a veil that separates the outer courtyard from the holy place. And then there's furniture in each of those three sections. And this is all pointing to how God wants to relate to you. Believe it or not, this ancient structure from what is it, 3,500 years ago, is telling us about Jesus, is telling us about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus and what he wants to have in terms of relationship with us. So with that in mind, I say that very clearly right here on the screen, the tabernacle informs our relationship with the Lord. Uh, for, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt. Another word for dwelt is tabernacled. The word in Greek is skeno. Uh, or skenu. I don't know. It's probably skenu. Uh, it, he tabernacled. He dwelt. He skenued among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then you look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. This is the summation. This is exactly what God wants uh, for us. Ultimately, the Bible is pointing to the end of the age, and that is Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling, the ski new place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So the Bible ends with God dwelling or tabernacling with us. And, and really the Bible ends with a picture of the Holy of Holies becoming the global city, the, the, the eternal city, a uh, cubicle structure wherein we dwell with God and there is no sun, there's no moon because the glory of the lamb is his light, is his light and, and God and humanity, his people dwell with him in eternity. So what we're talking about in this ancient structure, this ancient tent is actually pointing to our eternal reality. And most importantly for right now, 
the present reality that we're supposed to enjoy with the Lord. The Lord wants you to enjoy his presence. Now, let's go through the tabernacle um, facts, okay? So we're going to walk through these real quickly. Um, number one, we have altars. And altars obviously refer to what? They refer to sacrifice. They refer to death. And that's exactly what we uh, are going to find out is a key component to our relationship with God. They also have tables in the tabernacle or utensils. And what does that refer to? It refers to serving. Uh, we're going to enjoy this with God in his presence. And and Jesus came and told us how to serve. He came to seek, this, uh, he came to not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. We, we're going to see that there's wash basins in the temple and or the tabernacle. What is that talking about? That's talking about cleansing. God needs to wash us. Even though we have come into his presence, we still need to be cleansed in our conscience. We need to be cleansed from our sins. We need to continue this, continue this sanctification process. We have the outer veil, uh, which points to this idea of distinction, if you will, um, in our lives, the holy and the unholy, the common and the holy, if you will. Then there is the inner room or the holy of holies. And, and that really refers to other utter separation, I would call that, where you are in the presence of God and uh, we are... Um, cordoned off with him. We are not of this world, just as he is not of this world. There's a lampstand that's in the um, holy place. And this was the, uh, the eight, you know, branched tree of light that was never to be snuffed out. Exodus 27 verses 20 to 21 talks about that it will be a perpetual burning for the people of Israel. Well, what are they supposed to find in God's presence? They're supposed to find light that they might know the truth. They might know him. They might see as uh, he wants us to see. People are residing in darkness, coming into the presence of God, into relationship with God, opens our eyes to the reality of the world. There's the bread of presence. There were freshly baked loaves set on these plates, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes, um, illustrating the idea that in God's presence there is food, not just physical food, but spiritual food. Jesus talks about this in John 6, I'm the bread of life. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. So when we come into God's presence, there's nourishment, there's fulfillment, there's a satisfaction. Then there's incense altars in the holy place. What's this talking about? It's talking about prayer, that we go to God as we come into his presence. We go to God, we offer up our prayers, we, we pray to him, he hears us. This is the, the glorious nature of our salvation. We don't have a God that's disconnected. We don't have a God who's disinterested. We have a God who wants to talk to us, wants to speak to us. Psalm 141 says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Revelation 5, 8 uh, talks about the bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So we have a conversation with God. We call out to him. He speaks to us. There's also the inner veil, which Hebrews says in chapter 10, that's, that's the blood of Christ or the body of Christ. His body was uh, ripped open just as the inner veil between the holy place and the holy of holies, Matthew 27 says, was ripped open. And now we have access to uh, Hebrews 10, 19, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So we have the body and blood of Jesus represented in the inner veil. And finally, we have the Ark of the Covenant. And this is huge because this refers to the throne 
of God. This is where he resided. Psalm 80 verse 1 says, Shepherd of Israel, you are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. There was two angels that 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 were facing each other, but did not did not look at each other. They looked down at the mercy seat on top of the ark. That's where God's presence dwelt. So that is a picture in the tabernacle of what our relationship with God is like. There's sacrifice, there's food, there's serving, there's fulfillment, there's light, there's, a, you know, a sense of being separated unto God, and then we experience his presence in a real and powerful way. Now, that's what's in the tabernacle, but let's talk about what's on the tabernacle. So, there is one entrance to the tabernacle, and that's huge. We're going to look at that in just a moment. There is a, a curtain ex, ex enclosure on the outside of the tabernacle. This is the picture of God separating this space uh, different from other spaces, and, and it's what we're made for. There's poles that hold up these curtains, and they are um, equally distant from each other, and uh, there's this rectangular structure to the outer court. All of this points to some major biblical truths as we continue to get into this study. Then inside the Holy of Holies this is another section, of course, the innermost sanctum of the uh, of the temple or the tabernacle, you have badger or what the Hebrew says, takash skins on top of the uh, structure. That's the outermost layer on top of the Holy of Holies. You then underneath them had ram skins dyed red. And then underneath them, you had fine linen curtains. Um, all of these things are incredibly important. Let me just summarize those three fabrics that sat on top of the holy place, because this is really cool. Badger skins or takash, could be badger, could be another animal, but what you have to think about is worker animals. So there's work to be done. Number two, ram skins. Remember when Abram is about to offer, or Abraham at that point, is about to offer Isaac, the angel stops his hand and he looks up and he sees a ram caught in the thicket and the ram speaks to substitution. God is going to provide a substitution for for our sins, for our the death we should have, Christ will take upon himself. And so goat's hair refers to the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, uh, Aaron, the high priest, would put his hands on the goat's head, and he would pronounce over the goat all the sins of the Israelites, and then they would take that goat, they called it the scapegoat, and they would lead it into the wilderness, and uh, it would symbolize that the, the sins of the nation had been taken away. The other goat would be uh, slaughtered. So you have atonement, and then you have fine linen curtains, which are a picture of righteousness. Fine linen curtains all throughout this structure, and it's just, so some beautiful things, let me put that up there, some beautiful things that you are going to see in this study. And man, you know, it's, it's boring to read through if you're just, you know, reading to get through the text, but is it is exhilarating when you start to slow down and you say, what is this thing? Because as I say regularly, the Old Testament, you do not unhitch from it. You do not ignore it. You do not skip over it. The scriptures lead us to Christ. They point us to Christ and they teach us how to be saved. What Paul says to Timothy, you learn from the scriptures from infancy that to find something to be saved uh, from the scriptures. And, and the scriptures are, the Old Testament that is, the scriptures are the um, the, the tool that God, that Paul used to evangelize the whole Roman world in the first century at that time. I mean, he did not have Matthew. He did not have Mark. He did not have John. He did not have Romans. He hadn't written it yet. He went from synagogue to synagogue and reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And so when we look 
at the tabernacle instructions and the tabernacle details, we are seeing Christ. We are seeing a type, a shadow of Christ as Colossians chapter two talks about. So let's talk about this, the fundamentals, if you will, of the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle all about? Well, the first thing we're gonna see is that it's diminutive. It's humble. It's not visually stunning. You know, ancient Mesopotamians, they used to build ziggurats. In fact, there are some historians who believe that the Tower of Babel was not a tower or pillar structure as much as it was a ziggurat type of structure. By the way, these are all over the world. They are in Guatemala and in Central America. They are in South America. They are in um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Mesopotamian region. They're in the uh, areas of the northern part of Africa. Uh, the pyramids of Egypt, if you will, these these pyramid-type structures that are a picture of man trying to climb up to God. Well, the tabernacle is the opposite of that. It is not visible from miles away. It is lowly. It is humble. It is a simple structure. It is not. It is not adorned with you know costly stones and um, bricks and mortar. It, an amazing contrast between the Tower of Babel and the temple or the tabernacle because you have in the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter six, you have this deliberate statement that they were going to take uh, bitumen and mortar and they were going to burn and, and bake bricks and then put them together and build this permanent structure. And the funny thing about Genesis 6 is that it says that God had to come down to see what they were building. They, they were trying to build a tower to the heavens, and they built it up, and, and they got so high that God, in order to see it, had to come down to take a look, which just kind of was a slight against the human uh, tendency to think we can build these huge structures, we can build these skyscrapers, we can live forever, we can be, you know, a name of glory unto ourselves, but ultimately all of our efforts fall short. The tabernacle is a picture of Christ. He came and dwelt among us. And Isaiah 53 says he grew up before him like a tender young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus came and lived among us humble and uh, diminutive and then portable. It traveled with God's people. And this is another picture of our relationship with God. He is with us, God with us. Emmanuel is the season is the word of the season around Christmas, but it's not just Christmas, it's all year round. God wants to walk with you, talk with you, um, communicate with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He's with his people until the end of the age. He does not give up on us. Raise your hand if you're glad about that, or just say a quiet hallelujah or amen wherever you are. The tabernacle was wrapped in skin and, and, and wrapped in uh, fine linens, and, and some of the skins were from animals. And they were dyed, and there were certain colors that, that the Lord stipulates regularly in the text. And the three colors are blue, purple, and scarlet, or blue, purple, and red. Isaiah 50, uh, before I get to Isaiah 53, when you think about skin that is blue, purple, and red, what has happened to you if you have blue, purple, and red skin? You've been bruised, right? You ever, bam, you hit your arm, and a day later, the bruise appears. What's the colors? Blue, purple, and red. It's, it's a picture of bruising. This is what Christ comes and, and does. He is bruised for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, verse 5. He bears the chastisement that brings us peace. By his wounds we are healed. Beautiful pictures of the purpose of God in Christ Jesus to take away our sins and bring us close to him. 
Uh, it is supported by strong poles, acacia wood, which is one of the strongest woods in the uh, uh, Middle East. It is a very strong structure, and it's now you tie this point to the previous point where it's wrapped in skin, but it's supported by strong poles. Well, think of your body. Uh, if the tabernacle is a picture of Christ, Christ dwells among us as the tabernacle dwelt amongst Israel. Well, Christ was here in a human body. He, he, he inhabited humanity. What is a human body but skin and and bones, right? We, we say that. I'm just skin and bones. Well, that's what Jesus does in the incarnation. This is a beautiful picture, just a powerful picture of how Christ is um, foretold even in the tabernacle descriptions. It's amazing. There's one entrance. We're going to go into this a little bit deeper. You come in one way. And by the way, the same way by which you enter is the same way by which you leave. And a sinner would come with his sacrifice into the tabernacle and he would bring his sacrifice for sins and he would come guilty, but he would leave uh, forgiven. He would leave righteous. Beautiful picture here. Then there's no statue or idol. Again, old uh, uh, ancient Near East worship centers, temples, uh, they were built up. They were uh, impressive from the outside, not the tabernacle, diminutive and humble, but they were also filled with idols, statues. I think about the Philistines with, with the God of Dagon, the statue that uh, they bring the Ark of the Covenant in. It's not a, it's not a picture of a, a being or a creature. It's just a, a box that holds the law and and Aaron's rod and and the manna, and they bring it in. The, the Philistines do this in, in 1 Samuel. They bring it in to the temple of Dagon, and the next day they wake up, and there's Dagon's uh, body. The, the statue is laying on his face in front of the Ark, and then they pick him back up, and they put him on his feet again, and the next day they come in, and, and there he is, and now his arms have been broken off, and it's a picture of the fact that God does not get represented by um, our imaginations. We we don't get to make God in our image. That, that's why there were no statues and, and the second commandment exists. We do not imagine God as we want him to be. He, he imagines us as he wants us to be. And then there's a, a bunch of other things. There's instruments of sacrifice and offerings. There's forks, there's utensils, there's plates. There's not idols, there's plates. When, when the Babylonians come in to, do, to um, basically steal from the temple in Jerusalem, they don't find idols, they find utensils because this is a place of serving. Our God is a serving God. Jesus serves. This is what we're supposed to do. As Christ served us, we serve others. It was filled with food. It was probably the, the best place to eat in ancient Israel was in the, in, in the tabernacle. All those oxen, all those sheep, all those um, birds coming in, all that bread being baked. Think about the smells. I, it doesn't take much for me to come home when there's a steak on the grill and I just smell that aroma and I'm like, woohoo, baby, I'm home. I love that food. Well, that was the tabernacle. You came into this incredible aroma. But at the same time, there was lots of blood. Uh, the blood was, and you'll see this in the text, sprinkled on the altar, sprinkled on the curtain, sprinkled on the center, sprinkled, applied to the lobe and the thumb and the, and the foot of the priests as they anointed them. It was filled with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, Hebrews tells us. And then, so you get all that blood, you get all that food, and you get all those aromas because of the incense. There was a particular oil for anointing. Was, which was also applied to the priests, and it was a sp special blend, uh, you could say, that God prescribed for his priests. And so you had this incredible sensory experience when you walked in the tabernacle. Now, in our day and, and time, we can purchase expensive perfumes, and we can um, fill our homes with fragrance, and we can, you know, grill a steak out on the, uh, on the, on the grill, and, and, and we can 
you know, spray things to clean our house. And we could fill our houses pretty easily with a bunch of aromas. But in the ancient world, this was a very, very, uh, very uncommon reality. Not many people had uh, the, the pleasantries that we have today. But in the ancient world, God wanted his house to be filled with this multi-sensory experience. You saw things, you felt things, you smelt things. And think about the impact that smell has on our memory. You ever, you ever smell something and suddenly you remember a moment or you remember a song or you remember a time in life or a place and the memories come flooding back. Well, this is how God wanted the tabernacle. He wanted it to remind Israel they were never alone. He was with them. He loved them. And his place was the best smelling, most exhilarating place to be in the ancient world. And then finally, it was filled with ministry to God's people. And that's ultimately what the tabernacle is about. It's about serving the people of God. God wants you to come into his presence so that you might receive from him. You might receive the, the beauty of the atmosphere and his presence and his peace and his joy and his nourishment and his wisdom and his knowledge and all of his blessings. You have, you have been blessed, Ephesians says, with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Oh, I just get excited talking about this stuff. I really do. Because so many times people have misconstrued the Bible and Jesus and uh, Christianity as this boring place, this dried up, fuddy-duddy location. I don't go to church. It's boring. Man, that's, that's not on you. That's on those who represent that church or lead that church. The church should be a multi-sensory experience. I, I fully believe this. It should be the place where you get fed spiritually. It's the, it's the place where you should be reminded of the goodness of God, where you should experience ministry to you and through you to other people. The tabernacle, ultimately, is the way God has chosen to dwell among his people. So, to the text we go. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. The command from God to Moses. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell. There it is again. Dwell in their midst. Exactly. And this is a very important point. Do not deviate from my plan. He says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. That's an important um, uh, stipulation. You're going to build. God doesn't build it, but he uses the people uh, to build it. He uses a particular person to lead the building of the tabernacle. We're going to get to that in just a moment. And so the next text that I have here on the screen is Exodus chapter 24, verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt there's these two words. We're going to tie together right here, okay? And the word in Greek, uh, Hebrew, sorry, is uh, tabnith or tabnith. And uh, that's what the word dwell is in Hebrew. But God dwelt, tabnith, on the mountain of Sinai, where they received the law, where they experienced the glory cloud, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. But, but now you see that what God is going to do is he's going to descend. He's going to come down and tabnith with his people. And I just thought about it. This, this is important. Three thoughts. The people are commanded to build a tabernacle. The tabernacle must be according to God's specifications or the pattern. It can't just be what they want. It's what God has patterned and, 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 and um, foreordained. And then thirdly, the tabernacle would welcome God's presence among them from the, from, from the mountain down to their level. 
This is imperative for our faith, to understand our faith. I, I thought, let me put this up on the screen. It's a picture of uh, the old uh, glory cloud on the, on the, and this is a kind of artist rendition. The people of Israel are down in the valley, the Mount Sinai before them, the glory cloud of, of God, the shining radiance of his glory. And, and what God is saying is, okay, I've been on this mountain giving you the law, but now I'm coming down to you. What does that mean? It means we do not climb the mountain to get to God. I hear Christians say this all the time. I'm trying to get closer to God. I want to get closer to God. I'm doing my best. I'm doing my, my best. I want, I want to get close to God. Okay, okay, I understand that. The sentiment is valid. It's very, very powerful. It's good sentiment. But can I tell you that it starts with God coming close to you? See, you can grow closer to God. You can. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. But... You come near to God because he has already come down to you. He is the God who descends. He is the God who left heaven in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, and came to us. If you know God today, you know God today because he descended to come and meet with you. See, salvation from that perspective is so important. You don't get saved. He saves you. Put the subject right and the verb right and the object of the verb that was operated on by the subject, right? Why? Because salvation that says God saved me glorifies God's grace. But salvation that says, well, I believed and I received and I came, well, that kind of glorifies your own self-efforts, your own righteousness. And we don't have any righteousness apart from God and Christ Jesus. We don't. Our righteousness, Isaiah 64 says, is filthy rags. We don't have righteousness in and of ourselves. So what does God do? He comes from heaven to us and saves us. And that is the hope of our salvation. That's the hope of our faith. It is different from every other faith in human history. Every other faith. Uh, from Islam uh, to Taoism uh, to Shintoism to Hinduism and Buddhism is man's attempt to reach the divine or the nirvana or the uh, netherworld, if you will, uh, or paradise. But, but, but our faith, Christianity, is rooted in the promise that the, the divine, the divine would come and reach us. He would come down. We don't go up. He comes down. Beautiful. Okay. Who puts it all together? Not Moses. Nope. Moses says, I need you to assign somebody. Now, remember this. Moses is from the tribe of Levi. Uh, he was the uh, third-born child of um, uh, a family of Levites. And so uh, the, the Levites are the administrators of the temple, but they don't build the temple. And, and that's an important distinction because here's what it says in Exodus chapter 35, verse 30. It says, then Moses said to the people of Israel, see... The Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Now that's interesting. He's from the tribe, not of Levi, but of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiah, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan. Interesting little notation here that the guy who actually designs the tabernacle and builds it is from the tribe of Judah, the same tribe from which Jesus comes. Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah. Joseph descended from the, tr the tribe of Judah. And Jesus is kind of our new Bezalel, 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 <laughs> sorry, Bezalel, who promised in Matthew 16, 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. By the way, the name Bezalel means in the shadow of God or under God's shadow. So you look at the talents, by the way, look at the talents on the screen here from the text that God gave, God filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God and through the Spirit, you think about this picture of Jesus coming out of the water and the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove and, and settles and rests and stays on him. Well, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit and he has skill, he has intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, and he devises artistic designs and he works. Think about the fact that Jesus was a carpenter in his natural earthly trade. And most importantly, verse 40, uh, 34 says he was inspired to teach the people of Israel how to build this structure. I just see Jesus all over this text. Uh, Jesus is our true Bezalel who has the Spirit of God upon him, who is God the Son, God in flesh, filled with all the knowledge and all the wisdom and all this, the secrets of God to reveal to his people, to teach us how to build the church, which is a great um, reminder for pastors. If your church is not built the way Jesus wants the church to be built, you are building with uh, wood, hay, straw, and stubble, and it will be burned up on the day of judgment. Okay, so we have to examine ourselves regularly, pastors, uh, church leaders, anyone involved in Christian ministry. You have to examine yourself and say, am I doing this God's way or am I doing this in my own way? And I think the church today, in so many respects, is um, doing well, but needs a lot more work in creating environments of worship that honor Christ, that reveal the gospel, that encourage serving, encourage a unity, encourage a belonging for all kinds of people as the Lord would save them. That is the picture of the tabernacle. Let's take a look. Forgive the language here on this next uh, slide. I say that the dimensions of the temple, I'm talking about the tabernacle. So the dimensions are Exodus 27, verse 9. Forgive, this is a long passage. He says, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twisted linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. It's 20 pillars. And their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. Likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings of 100 cubits long as 20 pillars, uh, is pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze. Uh, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. He goes on in verse 14 and says, The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate, verse 16, and please I just highlight that here um, because it is one gate, one entrance. Very important that we understand that. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns. Again, those colors of bruising. Jesus says, I am the gate. So he says uh, in the text, a blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, yarns and fine twisted linen, which we will talk about in just a moment, embroidered with needlework, it shall have four pillars and with them four bases and all the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver, their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. So you have so many pictures of the singular gate, the colors of um, bruising, uh, blue, purple, and red, and then you have needlework. Well, how do you, how do you uh, create needlework Friends, you pierce the fabric. <laughs> I mean, it's just beautiful. Christ was pierced for our transgressions. 
again and again and again. The Bible comes alive when you do what the what the Lord did with the with the two men on the road to Emmaus when He shows them from Moses and all the way through the prophets all the scriptures concerning Himself. The Bible is about Jesus. So let's take a look a little bit more into detail here. We have the one entrance, which I've already stipulated several times, but but you have uh, Jesus saying in John chapter 14, verse 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way in. There is one entrance into God's presence, friend, and that is Jesus Christ. This is so important. Uh, the, 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 The temple or the tabernacle does not have several entrances. There are not many ways to God. That is a lie from the pit of hell. There is one way. You say, that's very exclusive. It is. The way is exclusive, but the offer is inclusive. Muslims can come to Christ. Uh, Hindi can come to Christ. And atheists and agnostics and left-leaning people and right-leaning people and your greatest enemy can come to God in Christ Jesus. It is the most inclusive, exclusive offer in world history. And that is the picture that the tabernacle presents for us. Secondly, total enclosure beyond the gate, the place was enclosed. And what does this tell us? It tells us that God's presence was distinct and separate from this world. And the people of Israel, these curtains were about eight feet high, and people are not eight feet tall. So in in fact, in the ancient world, and I've been to Pompeii, they were probably much shorter than we are today. But God's presence is distinct. We don't don't see uh, his presence as we see the world. And there are some cool images from uh, the temple structure that we're going to see that kind of visually stimulate you to think of heaven. This is a strike also at pantheism. Pantheism. Pan meaning all, theism meaning God, or theos meaning God, and that is the idea that God is in all things. And you hear this all the time. Oh, God is in the rocks, and God is in the stars, and God is in a newborn baby's cry. Wrong, 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 wrong. (laughs) He is not in all things. He is over all things. He created all things, but he is separate from his creation. This is also a a blow against the ancient Near East um, creation myths, uh, such as the Babylonian, um, uh, what is it, the Enuma Elish uh, narrative, where the the gods create creation and they're kind of part of creation, and and, and it it all just blows away the common rationality about creation and the gods in the ancient world. God is distinct and separate from his creation at the same time he is involved in, in his creation. There is not a square inch of the universe wherein God does not call out mine. And I forget who said that, not me. See if I can remember who said that. Somebody else, some other great preacher said that. God owns it all, he's involved in all. But more importantly, what this outer enclosure reminds us of is this, that we are by nature excluded from the presence of God. And that's important, that's important. So if you were a Jew, you were born in Israel in the ancient world, and this tabernacle was the place of worship, you were born outside of God's presence. This is a teaching tool. And you don't just wander in on your own terms in the way that you want to. No, there was a way in. You had to discover it. You had to do it rightly. You had to follow the protocol, listen to God's word, and follow it. And that is important because Scripture says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We have to understand. He makes us holy, brings us into his holy place, and now we are with him and see him. And then secondly, having come in one way, God wants us to uh, have an intimate and focused time with us. We come out of the world. We are separate. This is what prayer, fasting, and assembling as the church does. It separates you from the world. Why do I love Sunday morning at my church? And you should too. It's because I get to, I get, to get out of this crazy world, and I get to be alone with God's people and with God, and my heart can be elevated above the status of this life. 
and focus on my life in God. As 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. So you have these fine twisted linens that were the outer enclosure of the tabernacle. And let's talk about those because this is really cool. And one of you, someone is going to get one of their biggest Bible questions answered in just about um, 30 seconds, probably longer. But let's take a look at what I'm talking about. Fine twisted linens are all over the tabernacle. Exodus 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And then he talks about this again in uh, 27, verse 18. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50, and the height 5 cubits, with hangings of fine twisted linen and five uh, and bases of bronze. You say five cubits, that sounds like five feet. No, a cubit is the distance between your elbow and the tips of your fingers, so approximately 20 inches. Five cubits is approximately eight feet uh, in length. Uh, he says in verse verse 19, all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So fine twisted linen everywhere in the tabernacle. Fine twisted linen. We don't have to guess about this. The Bible makes clear what that is. It's a reference to the righteous deeds of the saints. Righteousness is a picture of the righteousness of God. Um, Revelation 19, verse 8, it was granted to her to clothe herself, this is the bride of Christ, with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the church is clothed with righteousness, and then they do righteous things in righteousness. Understand this as a Christian. You are made righteous so that you might do righteousness. And apart from being made righteous, all your righteousness is as filthy rags. So we need to be first, we need to be first, um, objectively made righteous so that we can produce righteous acts in good faith and with a pure heart. And that is the fine linen of the tabernacle that now clothes us. Well, this is kind of interesting because there is a text here, and this is twisted fine linen um, with, remember verse 26, uh, verse 1 of Exodus 26 says, with blue, purple, and scarlet yarns. So you have, now, now listen to this very carefully. This is so cool. Fine twisted linen interwoven with yarns of purple, blue, and scarlet colors. You have a mixture of fabrics. Now this should automatically start to stir some of you Bible questioners mind. There is an obscure law in Leviticus 19, 19. It says, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. And people get so worked up about this because it's the same chapter that talks about homosexuality and other kinds of, you know, sexual deviancy. And you say, well, if you're not going to agree with Leviticus 19.19, then how can you talk about homosexuality being a sin? And, and people say, this is the proof text for homosexuality not being a sin. So uh, we, we should be okay with it. But you know, the, the text also addresses in, in Leviticus 19 um, incest. Uh, it, it, it addresses sleeping with your um, uh, with animals, other, other forms of sexual immorality. We don't embrace them, do we? Because we because of this law. We don't make that same argument for those sins. But have you ever thought about this? That God was actually putting this law into place. There's a good chance that it was a cultural reason because the other nations did this. But the, 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 the more biblical argument could be made that because the temple was a unique place where you met with God and the outer clothing was a righteousness that was, that was given to the people by design from heaven. Okay, you were not to wear that same outfit because you in yourself 
outside of the presence of God are not righteousness, are not righteous. There, there is no one who can put on the righteousness of God outside of coming into the presence of God by faith in his way of salvation, that is, in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter uh, 1. The righteousness of God is revealed from heaven, from faith, for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And here you have one of the most, one of the most vexing passages in the Bible. Uh, how do we reconcile these these two uh, these texts about not wearing cloth with two kinds of material. Well, we do it that way. The temple was a picture of God's righteousness, and when we come in, when we come into the temple, the tabernacle, we are enclosed by the righteousness of God and not by our own righteousness. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. And then 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 30. Love this passage as well. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, the true tabernacle, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? So you have this great transmission, right? From the righteousness of God is now imputed onto you, into you. You are made righteous in Christ, which is why Paul says all over the New Testament, clothe yourself with Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We have the breastplate of righteousness in our warfare, knowing that our confidence comes not because we're good people in and of ourselves, but because Christ has given us his very righteousness. Ah, beautiful. Let me talk a little bit more about the curtains around the outermost court of the temple, tabernacle, because they were to embroider on those walls pictures of angels. Look at what it says in Exodus 26, verse 1. You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen, blue, purple, scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim. That's another word for, <clears throat> for angels. Skillfully worked into them. So, Blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, you have this beautiful color spectrum. You also have embroidered into the fabric pictures of angels. And I just want you to see this. Imagine walking into the tabernacle structure and you see blue and you see angels. What are you, what are you invited into? You're invited into a heavenly experience. What's in heaven? Angels. They surround the throne of God. Uh, when we look up into the sky on a clear day, what do we see? Blue. It points, the skies proclaim, you know, his glory. And, and so we enter into a heavenly reality when we come into his presence. Well, Paul picks up on this imagery in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says in verse 4, God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, the tabernacle was to, was, was to be a place where you walked in and you immediately felt that you had left earth and you had entered into heaven. And I, I think about when people genuinely come to Christ, when Christ saves them, they talk about that. They say, I can't put my finger on it, but something, something supernatural changed. I am, I just, I know, I know God was in that moment. He was saving me. Beautiful, beautiful pictures in this 3,500-year-old document of our salvation in Christ Jesus. So angels in the atmosphere in the tabernacle. When you came in that one door, that one gate, you first met the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar. This would be the first thing that you see. And make no mistake, this was intentional because the priest would take your sacrifice and offer your sacrifice on that altar for your sins. The idea here is you do not come to God without death. 
sacrifice is required for our sins to meet with God. So I just think this is important for some of you to hear. There was not a bunch of to-do lists at the doorway of God's tabernacle. There was not, okay, um, say these seven prayers and then recite these seven poems and then give this money to this poor widow and then you will come in. No, there was a the death of an animal, the death of a bull or of a goat for your sins. And that was pointing to the fact that that's how you come to God in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. That's as far as we're going into the tabernacle for now, and it is beautiful. Many, many more pictures to come in this mini-series within our series on the Torah, but I want to sum up some things. Uh, we will call these spiritual truths from the tabernacle big takeaways. Here's a big takeaway. Remember I said that the large portions of Exodus are devoted to the tabernacle, its descriptions, and its construction. Well, the descriptions, I don't know if you noticed this, they start from the innermost part of the tabernacle and they work their way outward. Exodus chapter 25 starts with the contributions that the people gave toward the tabernacle. And then the next section, the heading in my Bible from my Lagos Bible app here is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the innermost sanctum, the innermost part of the temple, uh, the temple uh, complex. And then what you see is God giving the details from the Holy of Holies outward, which is a beautiful picture of our salvation. Let me say it like this. It's a picture of knowing the Lord. So we, they make the sanctuary. Uh, Exodus 25, verse 8, that's the calling, the, the command from God. Then verse 10, two verses later, make an ark of a wood, uh, and, and he gives the dimensions there. And, and so what you see, this is so beautiful, you see that our coming to God is from the inside out. We know the Lord, firstly, from the inside out. In Christ Jesus, as he reveals, us, uh, reveals himself to us, he changes our heart. Jeremiah, I will give them a new heart. I will remove the stone, the heart of stone. I will give them a heart of flesh. And they will know the Lord. And they will not be, they will know, know, will say know the Lord because they will all know me. And I'll cause them to walk in my commandments. Well, what is this talking about? It's what Paul talks about in Romans, that we obey from the heart. Okay, we come to God inwardly and we are transformed outwardly. So listen to me, longtime Christians. Have patience for new Christians. Have patience for baby Christians because they are changed inwardly, but it's going to take some time for that inward reality to manifest or reveal itself outwardly. That's how it all it goes for everyone. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 2, 12, 12, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we work out what is already in. It is a beautiful picture of God's grace. Second, the tabernacle is a picture of Christ's humility. We talked about it. It's diminutive. It was low. It wasn't impressive by, you know, seeing it from afar. Well, that's what Christ does. He embodies flesh. He dwelt among us. He was a carpenter from Nazareth. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider or count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. I'm sorry, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God is not unreachable, friend. In fact, God is in Christ Jesus, the most humble of all men, willing to associate with the lowly. lowly. Israel, uh, in Jesus' day, uh, sought a political revolutionary to overthrow the Romans, to enact war, and to take back their land. 
<laughs> and Jesus comes humble, riding uh, the foal of a donkey and weeping over the city and then dies a criminal's death, humbled himself. Woo! <sighs> just, do you ever get overwhelmed by that? You ever just get overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus did that for us? Unbelievable stuff. Number three, the tabernacle is a picture of God's love for sinners. <laughs> this is why, why I'm laughing, uh, because, of the, because of the passages that I'm about to read to you. That God gave them instructions on how to build a tent for him to dwell among them. When all throughout Torah, he tells them how much they're trouble. <laughs> they're, just, they're just horrible, stiff-necked people. And God says this repeatedly. I told you before, there's that three-chapter break, Exodus 32, 33, 34, where the golden calf, Moses' intercession, and the renewal of the covenant, because they, as God was giving the, the law and the design for the tabernacle to Moses, they were literally breaking the first and second commandments, really all the commandments, uh, by fornicating and uh, partying and revelry and, uh, you know, and sin and 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 just incurring judgment upon themselves. And and God says, here's the passage, Exodus 32, 9, I've seen this people is stiff-necked people. Or Deuteronomy 7, 7, he says, It's not because you are more in number than the people that that the Lord, than other people that the Lord set his love on you or chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. You're not that impressive of a group, in other words. And then uh, the New Testament passage where Stephen says that God describes them as you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Yet God chose to dwell amongst this stiff-necked, rebellious people. Make no mistake, friend. God loves sinners. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. He was the friend of sinners. He was considered a glutton and a drunkard because he hung around people who probably were drunkards and gluttons. He was a friend of the lowly. He was a friend of the outcast. And he could be a friend to you. Remember the original problem. Scripture says in Genesis 3.8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and then they hid themselves from his presence. And then a little bit later, after God pronounces the judgment for sin, he drives man out, Genesis 3.24, from the garden. And he puts that cherubim in a flaming sword, and, and it turns every way to guard the tent from the tree of life. And then Isaiah 59, verse 2 says, your sins, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Uh, that is our problem, and the presence of God is revealed to us through the tabernacle as a sign, a picture of God's grace. He comes back toward or to us. Finally, the tabernacle is a picture of God's eternal plan. I led off with this passage. I'll just read it again. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. These are the promises of Scripture for us. Creation is redeemed. The original intention, God dwelling with man, is finally realized in the eternal temple, the heavenly temple that comes down and uh, renews all things. Amen. What can we conclude from this talk? Real simple and really cool, really wonderful truths. Number one, that God is holy and separate from sinners. Uh, we talked about the outer enclosure of the tabernacle made that clear. Number two, that that same God who is separate and holy desires sinners to come to him. And that number three, he has made himself available to sinners. He has become the gate. He is the way, the truth, the life. He wants sinners to come to him. The father wanted the prodigal son to come home. Who didn't want the prodigal son to come home? 
the older son, the, the older son. <laughs> but the heart of the father is for the prodigal. And then this is the best news. The, the work necessary to make us right with God has been fully accomplished and will be fully completed in and through Christ Jesus. He has done everything necessary to make sinners righteous and then to make flawed righteous people more righteous and more holy. And that is the beautiful picture of the tabernacle for us. Amen, amen, amen. Uh, support the Bible study if you would. The cash app there is Tim Hatch Live or timhatchlive.com. But I would much prefer you be a dependable. The membership plans are there, 10, 20, 30, $60 a month supporting us. As you've probably heard, the deep end was taken down last night. Why? Because the YouTube overlords deemed it misinformation. And uh, I'm still at a loss as to what was considered misinformation. And you probably saw the follow-up video about that. When you support Tim Hatch Live, Tim Hatch Live supports 10% of all of our income. 10% goes to Project Rescue and another 10%. So 20% goes out to American Bible Society. And then the easiest way is just share the content, like it, subscribe, do all those things that we can appreciate you doing here on the YouTube channel for as long as this content is on YouTube, which I don't know if it's gonna be much longer. But that's where we are. Thank you guys so much for being here. I hope this was a blessing to you. May God bless your life and strengthen your faith in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm.